everyone. It is time to read the Des Moines Register for this Wednesday, March 20th, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Dennis May, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Barb DeHack. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. And now let's take a look at the weather and then the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Our statewide AccuWeather forecast calls for a cooler day today with clouds and sun and the winds from the north at 8 to 16 miles per hour, turning more cloudy tonight with possible flurries in the area. The forecast for Des Moines calls for a high of 43, a low of 27 degrees, cooler today with clouds and sun. On Thursday, a high of 43 again and a low of 36 and cloudy across the area, cooler with intervals of sun, sunshine and clouds. Looking at the front page of today's Des Moines Register, our main stories. No strategy, no victory. What made Cyclone's car a star in wrestling and in class? The Iowa Poll says, Auditor leads pack on job approval. Reynolds' margin slips but remains positive. And the Senate passes AEA plan as GOP leaders search for agreement. And here to get us started with today's Des Moines Register is Barb. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, let's start with the Iowa poll. Auditor leads pack on job approval. Reynolds margin slips, but remains positive. The state official who more Iowans think is performing their job well isn't the governor or attorney general. It's Auditor of State Rob Sand, the sole Democrat holding statewide elected office. A new Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll shows. 55% of Iowans approve of the job the Sand is doing as auditor, compared with 15% who disapprove. Another 31% say they aren't sure. This is the first time the Iowa poll has asked about Sand's job performance. <coughs> he was first elected in 2018 and is often discussed as a possible candidate for governor. The poll of 804 Iowan adults was conducted by Seltzer and Company February 25th through 28th and has a margin of error of plus or minus 3.5 percentage points. Other state government leaders, including Governor Kim Reynolds, Attorney General Brenna Byrd, and the Republican-led Iowa legislature, also poll more positively than negatively on job approval, but they trail sand. For Reynolds, 49% of respondents approve of her performance, compared with 48% who disapprove. Her slimmest approval margin in the Iowa poll since March 2021, when she was one point underwater. <coughs> Bird, who recently marked her first year in office, has 40% approval to 28% disapproval, with 32% not sure, the poll found. But her disapproval rate jumped 8 percentage points from March 2023, when she was at 20%, while her approval rating grew only 4% from 36%. 32% had no opinion. The Iowa legislature, where Republicans have controlled both houses since 2017, has a 47% approval rating, little change from previous Iowa polls since 2021. But 39% of Iowans disapprove of the legislature's performance, the highest figure since at least 2003. 
The poll also found that 44% of Iowans believe the state is going in the right direction, compared with 50% who think it's on the wrong track. <clears throat> it's the first time since September 2010 that half of Iowans think the state is on the wrong track. In November of that year, former Governor Terry Branstad won election to return to the governor's office, this time with Reynolds as his lieutenant governor. In Iowa polls, during the dozen years of the combined Branstad-Reynolds era, from February 2011 to March 2023, the portion of Iowans who believed the state was on the wrong track ranged from a low of 28% to a high of 47%. Respondents in the new poll also believe America is headed in the wrong direction, by a margin of 79% to 17%. In his six years as state auditor, Sand has touted his nonpartisan bona fides and the importance of conducting his office's work in an unbiased manner. Still, he has repeatedly butted heads with Reynolds and Republican lawmakers who have advanced or passed several proposals to limit the state auditor's authority. Yet, despite his sometimes contentious disagreements with Republican leaders, Sand has the approval of 51% of Republicans, the Iowa poll found, compared with 15% disapproval. 34% aren't sure. Shirley Ann Gettleman, 89, of, of Clarence, a Republican poll respondent and retired dairy farmer who approves of all the state's Republican officials and who agreed to a follow-up interview, said she believes Sand has done a good job. <clears throat> she opposed a recent measure to allow state agencies to seek outside audits rather than go through Sand's office. The bill failed to clear a key legislative hurdle last week and for now appears dead for this season. Quote, to have someone else do the audit, I think he's trying to do a good job. I don't care who the party is. Auditing is his job, and I think he's dug up some things and found some things, and that's okay. The poll also found Democrats approve of sand, approval of sand 67% to 8%, and independents 54% to 17%. For Reynolds, a new Iowa poll finds her approval narrowing since the most recent poll. In March 2023, when 50% approved and 46% disapproved. Notably, the shift since then appears to have happened primarily among members of her own party, said pollster J. Ann Seltzer, who conducts the hour poll. Reynolds has lost some of her sheen with Republicans, Seltzer said. Now 76% approve, compared with 86% last March, which was down from 91% in October of 2022. Seltzer noted that Reynolds' standing among independents, 46% approval and 51% disapproval, is little changed from last March, when her approval among while her approval among Democrats remains predictably sour at 14% approval and 85% disapproval. Gettleman said she believes Reynolds, like her, would like to see God back in our country and has been largely happy with everything the governor has done. <coughs> In particular, she praised Reynolds' efforts to streamline government, including a law she championed last year, consolidating state agencies, and a proposal Reynolds offered this year to reduce the number of area education agencies, which offer special education services to the state. Quote, to begin with, that was to help the kids who were having a hard time getting through school. And over the years, they added so many things, Gailman said. It seems like she's getting things streamlined back to where things should be. The Iowa poll found that 56% of Iowans have a favorable view of AEAs, compared with 20% who hold unfavorable opinions of the agencies. 24% say they aren't sure. 
Democrat Stanley Thompson, a 67-year-old pool respondent from Ottumwa, has little positive to say about the governor. The retired teacher, said Reynolds, is trying to destroy public education by limiting teachers' bargaining rights and giving Iowa families taxpayer funding to pay for private school. Reynolds has governed for the furthest right part of her, her base, he said. Quote, this idea of taking money away from the kids in the summertime for food, that's just something all the nutjob Republicans governors did. Something to be mean, he said, referring to Reynolds' decision to opt out of the summer EBT program, which the federal government operates to provide relief for low-income families with school-aged children. Independent and poll responded Frank Lenihan of Cheriton had a more ambivalent view of the governor. The 35-year-old utilities manager approves of Reynolds and said she has governed well for an older, wider, more rural state such as Iowa, even if he has more concerns about some of her more aggressive, aggressively conservative positions. Would I prefer her over California Governor Gaffner Newsom? Yeah, said Lenihan, who moved from California to Iowa in 2017. Is she 100% the best for my children? Probably not. The Iowa legislature is moving to enact many of Reynolds' policy requests, although some, like the Area Education Agency changes, have advanced in very different forms from what the governor initially proposed. Seventy percent of Republicans approved of the legislature's performance, compared with 16 percent or disapprove. That's down from 77 percent approval in the Iowa poll from 11 months ago. More independents approve than disapprove of the job the legislature is doing, at 47 percent to 42 percent. Lenihan said he supports legislators' efforts to reduce and eventually eliminate the state income tax. One area where he found fault was a recent controversy over a display in the Capitol from the Satanic Temple of Iowa, which was later destroyed by a Mississippi man. The display was permitted under a policy allowing other religious displays, such as nativity scenes, in the Capitol. Quote, it seems there was a lot of people in the state that were anti that statute, and I would have gone about that a different way, Lenihan said, proposing a ban on all such displays in the Capitol. I would prefer nothing than everyone getting mad about it. <clears throat> Thompson, like 68% of Democrats, disapproves of the job legislators are doing, while 17% of Democrats approve. He complained the lawmakers spent the whole legislative session on culture war issues, such as banning books from schools. On economic policy, he pointed to a bill that would cap wages for temporary workers in nursing homes as an example of wrongheadedness. You're not raising the wages for the people who want, you want to hire in the community, and you're lowering the wages for temp workers so you won't be able to hire temp workers, he said. What kind of problem solving is that? Our next article from the front page of today's Des Moines Register. No strategy, no victory. What's made Cyclone's car a star in wrestling and in class? From Ames. Coach Kevin Dresser has an unwritten rule he tells first-time Iowa State wrestlers. If you even sense trouble, call him. Day or night, sooner rather than later, before his boss finds out, before anyone outside the team finds out, and for darn sure before it hits the media. A few Cyclone wrestlers, for example, notified their coach immediately on that early Monday morning last May when DCI agents showed up to collect cell phones for what's now being called by some a warrantless search and seizure. 
Superstar David Carr, who will try to win his second NCAA championship this week in Kansas City, wants sit-up dresser too, but for something very, very different. Way back when, he was a true freshman still finding his way around the university's leafy campus. Dresser's cell phone went off. Uh, coach, something happened. It's serious. You need to know. He was sounding like the world was coming to an end, Dresser recalled to the register. It was his second or third week of school, and he said, I failed my first exam. He was freaking out. I said, it's all right. We've got great academic support. I told him to get in there, let them plug you into their system, and you'll be fine. Carr wasn't used to bombing a test or even a quiz. He was a good student at Perry High School in Canton, Ohio. He expected to be the same once reaching college. To him, flunking his first college test was such a big deal that it warranted following his coach's phone call to man. Uh, coach. That's David, Dresser said. He plugged himself into the academic support, and from then on, he's been great. Great might be an understatement. Carr not only has earned nearly every academic honor there is, he's done it while working through rigorous and intense workouts that have put him on the world-class wrestler pedestal. His list of wrestling accomplishments is as long as his string of positive grades. Foremost on his mind right now is excellence on the mat. He's seeking a second NCAA title in his fifth and final try Thursday through Saturday in Kansas City. He enters the postseason with a 22-2 and record and a number two national ranking. How has this elite-level athlete managed to navigate the very different, ultra-disciplined worlds of wrestling and academics? Simultaneously, well, quite well, everyone says. He has a lengthy athletics resume. In 2021, he was the NCAA champion. In 2023, the NCAA runner-up. Iowa State Male Athlete of the Year in 2021 and 2023. Four-time Big Ten champion. 2021 Big 12 Wrestler of the Year. Four-time All-American. 115-5 career record. If there's something to be done on the mat or in the classroom, Carr probably has already done it. We were big on that, David's mom, Linda Carr, said about her son's all-around abilities. What was the point in doing all these skills and being a great athlete if you can't compete in the school? Carr has thrived in large arenas full of screaming fans and in small classrooms. After telling Dresser he thought his college academic life was on the skids. Carr had been shocked when he learned that first semester that he wasn't scoring in the classroom as well as he did on the mat. Actually, I flunked my first three exams, Carr said. One was in geology, one was in psychology, and there was one more in something I can't recall right now. Would he lose his scholarship? Would he be kicked off the team? Or worse, kicked out of school? Would he lose a season of eligibility? Would he ever be a good student again? I called Dresser on my phone from my dorm. I, I said, hey, Dresser, I got my grades back. I'm failing three of my classes. I'm, like, really nervous, and he just laughed. You're all right, he told me. We'll get you some tutors. Dresser stayed calm throughout the conversation. He heard the seriousness in Carr's voice. He's a veteran coach. He has seen and experienced just about everything and knew this was just a blip in what would become one of the finest careers of any Cyclone athlete, could imagine. 
but I was like, dude, I'm flunking out, Carr recalled saying. I might not even wrestle at Iowa State. What if I'm ineligible? Dude, I'm freaking out. Was is this an overreaction? Probably a bit, but it was more just learning the hard way that college is a heck of a lot different from high school. He started meeting with teammates and people from the academic department, people that really encouraged him that he could do well. Carr's father, Nate said. The more they encouraged him, the more he focused. It's like we always say for sports, no strategy, no victory. Nate Carr was a bronze medalist at the 1988 Olympics. He was a three-time NCAA champion while wrestling for Iowa State and is now the associate director of the Cyclone Regional Training Center. My dad and mom made it very important for me to work on schoolwork, Carr said. They both encouraged me. I had a lot of people helping me with academics. Carr got the university's academic assistance that all student-athletes get. Possibly his biggest academic wake-up call came from an older wrestler teammate, Dan Eslick. Dan was exactly the role model type that I needed at that time, Carr said. He pretty much was, hey, you've got it. You can do this. Together we'll figure out a game plan to help you be successful. They did just that, an academic journey that started with while David was riding in Eslick's car. I remember that day, Eslick told me of his buddy's academic concerns. We'd become really close friends when he got to campus. I became his ride. He didn't have a car his freshman year, so we spent a lot of time in my car. One day, we were parked someplace. He told me he failed his first three exams. He thought he'd be ineligible or maybe worse, not even be able to finish school. Would David Carr's dreams vanish because of a few early college band grades? In wrestling terms, he needed an academic reversal, and he needed it now. I felt like I had some pretty good study habits, so I shared with him what I did, Eslick said. I suggested that he have a specific notebook for every class. I wrote down my notes for every class with a pen or a pencil. I told him that would help him stay engaged because sometimes it's hard to focus in class when you're cutting weight, like some wrestlers do, and you're tired compared to somebody with a full belly and a good night's sleep. I told him that at the end of the day, on a blank page, and without looking at your notes, write down everything you can remember from each class, words to live by. I got to the point where I didn't even bring my cell phone to class, Carr told me. I took notes. I printed out slides ahead of time. David showed me how to study better, how to set up myself to be successful in the classroom. Tutors helped me with consuming the class content. Now, look what's been added to David Carr's resume. Three-time scholar All-American. Four-time first-team All-Big 12 academic. Now, I'm getting my master's in higher education, Carr said. I've learned a lot about administration, about budgeting and marketing. If I'm a head coach someday, I'm going to know how to talk to an athletic director and my superiors. I'll know how to convey that we need a new wrestling room or that these are some budgeting concerns I have, things that will help me through my process of coaching and wrestling. The communications aspect of his major is a benefit at any walk of life, especially right now for athletes in this climate of making money off your name, image, and likeness. I know how to communicate with people, Carr said. I do a lot of speaking events. If I want to speak to a donor or if I'm talking to people, I know how to use my words, how to communicate.
I feel I'm a very effective manager. He has done speaking events throughout Iowa. He's done them very well, by all accounts. He is a true gentleman, as we are all the athletes' coach dresser guides, said Kay Hope, owner of Tweeter's Restaurant in Okoboji. Hope catered an Iowa State wrestling meeting greet last summer that Carr and other wrestlers attended. A true ambassador for the sport and for Iowa State. His bright eyes and smile light up a room with style and class. And now, this part of David Carr's exceptional wrestling and academic career is in its final days. However it ends, he'll be an all-around student-athlete success story for the ages. My college degree is very important to me, David said. Coming to Iowa State, my two goals were to win a national title and to get a college degree. Mission accomplished. He's pretty much just did it, said Eslick, his former teammate and academic mentor. Ever since that first conversation we had, it's been win after win in both the classroom and on the mat. The Senate passes an AEA plan as GOP leaders search for agreement. Iowa senators passed a bill Monday to restructure the state's area education agencies, approving a plan that differs from the House's and leaves Republicans in both chambers forced to search for compromise. A newly amended version of House File 2612 passed on a 28-22 vote, with six Republicans joining Democrats in opposition. But critical details differ between the House and Senate bills, such as how contracting for special education services will be handled, meaning leaders in both chambers will need to work out an agreement if they want to fulfill one of Governor Kim Reynolds' top priorities this session. Quote, schools deserve to have more transparency and accountability for how special education funding is spent, said Senator Lynn Evans, Republican of Aurelia. <clears throat> this bill provides them with more local control to base their spending on the unique needs of students in their districts. Under the Senate plan, districts would have until February 1st to make an annual decision whether to contract with the AEAs for special education services, as well as media and other general education services. If a district declines, it can seek out private companies with which to contract. Currently, the AEAs are the proprietors of those services across the state. Senate Republicans' bill also takes a different approach to funding services than the House plan by redirecting money that currently goes to the AEAs and instead sending it to the school districts. In fiscal year 2025, beginning in July 2024, AEAs will receive all of the money calculated for special education services, 40% for media services, and 40% for general education services. The other 60% for media and general education services will be sent to districts. <clears throat> in fiscal year 2026, beginning July 2025 and beyond, AEAs will receive 10% of the funding for special education services, with the other 90% going to districts. The agencies will not receive any guaranteed money for media or general education services. Districts will have the option, starting in July 2025, to seek private vendors for all services currently provided by AEAs, including special education. AEA services will be offered on a fee-for-service model, provided only if requested and paid for by the district. The House plans to take a different tack, guaranteeing that AEAs will remain the sole provider of special education services indefinitely, while allowing districts to seek private contracts for media and general education services starting in 2025. 
Senate Democrats strongly criticized the bill on the floor, calling it war- unwarranted and harmful to schools and students as they urge Republicans to break with Reynolds. Do not follow the governor off a cliff, said Senator Janet Peterson, Democrat of Des Moines, in remarks directed toward Senate Republicans. And Senate Minority Leader Pam Yocum, Democrat of Dubuque, said that changes that changes to the system, originally drafted by a group including U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, would harm most rural districts. What you are doing today is creating more instability, more uncertainty, and this system will collapse, said Joachim, whose child receives special needs services through the AEAs. In a statement Monday evening, Reynolds thanked the Senate for passing the bill and, quote, acknowledging that the AEA system needs reform. She pledged to work with the chamber leadership to reach a deal. I now look forward to working with the House and Senate to reach a compromise that will bring transparency, accountability, and consistency to the AEA system, while more, most importantly, improving outcomes for students with disabilities, Reynolds said. <clears throat> it remains to be seen what a final agreement between Republicans in the two chambers would look like. Both Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer, Republican of Grimes, and House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican of New Hartford, have said in recent weeks that leadership, com- committee chairs, and the governor's office had discussed the bill and made progress. Whitfer said he was optimistic about the prospects of a deal on AEAs between the two chambers and that, quote, we've had good conversations with both the House and the governor, so I'm optimistic. Grassley agreed with that sentiment, saying there was common ground that could lead to an eventual agreement. It looks like there's willingness to want to inc- increase beginning teacher pay. It looks like there's a willingness to want to have some level of reform when it comes to AEAs, Grassley said last week. It's just obviously what are the details and what the final product is going to look like. <coughs> Superintendents and school Groups across the state, meanwhile, have continued to lean on lawmakers in both chambers about their AEA bills, both in opposition and support. A group of 30 superintendents wrote in a letter Sunday that they were deeply concerned about proposed changes to AEAs. Quote, rural school districts, in particular, rely heavily on AEAs for critical support, the group wrote. Disrupting a model that has largely worked over the past 50 years will have grave consequences for the students we serve, end quote. Implementing changes quickly, they wrote, risks destabilizing our educational ecosystem. The group also said that centralizing more authority within the Department of Education represents an unnecessary overreach by our state government. Other superintendents have continued to urge lawmakers to make changes at the agencies. In a register op-ed last week, leaders from Spirit Lake and Okaboji said the AEA bills give districts who know their needs and potential partners best several options. Many school superintendents across the state believe reforming the AEA system will lead to positive changes, they wrote. We need an an efficient system that can be created by giving districts control of the money allocated on their behalf so they can make the most impactful decision with their funding. Lawmakers in the House and Senate have also diverged on how they address increasing the starting teacher pay in Iowa. Under the Senate bill to restructure AEAs, the minimum starting teacher pay would be set at $46,250, higher than the current floor of $33,500, but lower than Reynolds' request of $50,000.
House Republicans have opted to take on teacher pay as a separate issue, a move praised by Democrats and educational groups who are squarely in favor of a pay raise, but remain either hesitant or opposed to restructuring AEAs. Reynolds, in her initial proposal, combined teacher pay and AEA restructuring into a single bill. The first year teacher would make a minimum of $47,500 for the first year the House plan would be in effect, before raising to $50,000 in year two. Grassley said the two-year structure responded to districts who were concerned about managing their budgets while bumping up the rest of the salary scale. Cool, we want to make sure school districts have time to implement that and make adjustments, adjustments internally with the changes we made, he said in February. In her statement, Reynolds urged lawmakers to address teacher pay, including for more experienced teachers. The AEA bill passed by the Senate includes language to increase starting pay, but does not address more experienced teachers. Quote, at the same time, we must recognize the important role of teachers in the classroom by increasing minimum salaries for both starting and experienced teachers, she said. Turning now over to the Metro and Iowa section, our headlines. Plea deal ends final gambling probe case. Proposal could delay pipeline ruling. And Nick's penitentiary's first black warden dies at 93. We'll take plea deal ends final gambling probe case. Iowa basketball student manager to pay $645 fine. In the final prosecution resulting from Iowa investigators' controversial sports betting probe, a University of Iowa men's basketball student manager has pleaded guilty to underage gambling. Evan Schuster agreed to pay a $645 fine as part of the plea agreement, ending a string of charges against 25 athletes and student managers connected to the University of Iowa and Iowa State sport programs. Fans, coaches, parents, and politicians have criticized the cases, which began when an Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation special agent used an online tool to check whether users were opening betting apps on their cell phones inside campus sports buildings. In all, 19 of the 25 cases led to guilty pleas on underage gambling charges. Each of those defendants paid the same $645 fine Schuster did. Story County prosecutors dismissed more serious charges against six athletes, five of them after defense attorneys accused DCI special agents of lying to the athletes, athletes during the interrogations and probing their cell phones use without warrants. Iowa Department of Public Safety Commissioner Stephen Bayens defended the investigation, saying in a March 1st statement that the DCI special agents conferred with unnamed legal experts as they carried out the probe. Throughout the investigation and subsequent prosecution, we continually reviewed our actions, and I fully stand behind the investigation and the agents who did the work, Bayon said. Schuster did not respond to a message left at a listed phone number Monday. According to a criminal complaint, he placed about 2,000 bets on the Fantasy Sports app FanDuel from February of 2021 through February of 2023. They included bets on 10 University of Iowa men's basketball games while he served as a student manager, raising concerns about collusion and access to insider information. He placed the bets on an account registered to his father, Tony Schuster, leading the Johnson County Attorney's Office also to file a records tampering charge against the younger Schuster. Tony Schuster did not respond to a call or an email on Monday.
As part of his guilty plea to the lesser charge of underage betting, Schuster admitted he placed bets in August of 2020 when he would have been 18 years old. The legal betting age in Iowa is 21. The Iowa men's basketball spokesperson did not respond to an email Monday asking whether Schuster is still a student manager. Charges were dropped on ISU players after attorney accuses the DCI of warrantless searches and lying. Of the eight cases brought in Johnston County, including Schuster's, the prosecutors eventually agreed to reduce the charges to underage gambling each time. Unlike the other Johnson County cases, though, Schuster's guilty plea comes after prosecutors in Story County agreed to drop charges against five former Iowa State athletes amid criticism of how the DCI conducted the investigations. Schuster's attorney, Leon Spies, or Spies, did not respond to an email or call seeking comment. In January and February court filings, defense attorneys for the Iowa State athletes accused the DCI of pro of probing cell phone activity without a warrant and of lying to defenders about the nature of some interrogations. The attorneys alleged that in a pretrial deposition which they had not publicly released, DCI Special Agent Brian Sanger testified that he began the investigation by looking at software produced by GeoComply, a company that can identify the location of betting activity by tracking app use. Sanger allegedly testified that he used the software to see whether people open betting apps inside the athletic complexes at the universities, even though he did not apply for a warrant first. Defense attorney said DCI Special Agent Mark Ludwig, also in a deposition, testified that his boss told him the investigation was, quote, purely administrative, with the division probing whether betting sites like FanDuel and DraftKings were properly enforcing state gambling regulations. Ludwig allegedly testified that he told Iowa State defensive lineman Isaiah Lee before an interview in connection with the case that he would not face criminal prosecution. But after Lee disclosed that he did place bets, Ludwig allegedly testified his boss, special agent in charge Troy Nelson, congratulated him on securing a confession. Software company then cuts off DCI's access. In addition to the depositions, emails that defense attorneys obtained through an open records request showed that GeoComply cut the DCI's access to its software in January. The company has not returned messages from the register seeking comment. Defense attorneys filed motions to suppress the evidence collected by the DCI. On March 1st, four days before a scheduled hearing on that request, Assistant Story County Attorney Benjamin Matchin filed a motion to dismiss cases against Lee, former Iowa State defensive, and Yoma Uwazurik, running back Gerald Brock, and wrestler Panero Johnson. Matchin then filed a motion to dismiss charges against former Iowa State basketball player Austin Asani on March 4th. The Story County Attorney's Office also dropped a case against former Iowa State tight end Deshaun Hanukkah in September, after missing a deadline to give him a copy of his indictment. Coaches and some politicians have criticized the DCI in the wake of the defense attorney's allegations. I knew this thing was a mess, and I knew it was mismanaged, and I knew it was mishandled, Iowa State wrestling coach Kevin Dresser said in January. Basic liberties were infringed upon, Iowa wrestling coach Tom Brand said the same week. That should happen. That shouldn't happen in this country. It shouldn't happen in the state of Iowa.
Iowa State Senator Janet Peterson, Democrat from Des Moines, said during a March 6 speech at the Senate floor, on the Senate floor, that the DCI appeared to have violated people's rights to privacy. While DCI still be, excuse me, will DCI still be conducting warrantless searches on other kids, she said, on high schoolers, on kids in elementary schools? What else are Iowans' privacy rights being violated? I urge the governor to address this issue with DCI and to assure Iowans they have a right to privacy without more warrantless searches by DCI. Iowa Senator Dan Dawson, Republican from Council Bluffs, a DCI special agent, defended his division and accused Peterson of running the DCI into the ground. He pointed out that the investigation netted many guilty pleas. Quote, these athletes use someone else's identity to set up the fake account on their phone, he said. That's a crime. And we're ignoring that entirely. A proposal could delay pipeline ruling. Some groups want Iowa regulators to force Summit Carbon Solutions to consolidate its request to build an $8.5 billion carbon capture pipeline across the state, a move that could delay a ruling on a permit for the controversial project. The Ames Company proposes to capture carbon dioxide emissions from ethanol plants, liquefy them under pressure, and transport them via the pipeline to North Dakota to be sequestered deep underground. The Iowa Utilities Board is believed to be nearing a decision on Sumpet's 2001 request for a permit to build a 690-mile segment of the multi-state pipeline across 29 Iowa counties, serving 12 ethanol plants. But earlier this month, Summit filed 14 permit requests to add 340 miles of pipeline that would connect 17 Poet and Valero ethanol plants. The companies, the nation's largest ethanol producers, joined the Summit project after another company, Navigator CO2 Ventures, killed its proposed $3.5 billion carbon capture pipeline late last year, citing regulatory batteries. Summit said the expansion would require pipeline construction in 23 more Iowa counties. That's on top of a Summit permit request in June to build a 31-mile lateral pipeline in Mitchell and Floyd counties, serving another ethanol plant. The Sierra Club's Iowa chapter and the Iowa Farm Bureau Federation have filed motions asking the board to reopen the record on Summit's pipeline proposal. The record was closed after an eight-week hearing last fall. Seven counties and landowners who opposed the project joined the motions. These new trunk lines are clearly part of the same project, wrote Tim Whipple, a Des Moines attorney who represents counties that are in a legal battle with Summit over setback requirements for the pipelines that are stricter than the state's. Whipple also wrote that the legal issues being considered in Summit's original permit requests are the same as those in the new requests. Summit has, prove, has to prove the pipeline will promote public convenience and necessity, which generally means that the public's benefits outweigh potential liabilities. And the board will consider whether Summit should be granted eminent domain powers, enabling it to force unwilling property owners to sell it access to their land. This is not a situation where a pipeline is already constructed and years later a single lateral pipeline is proposed, wrote Wally Taylor, representing the Sierra Club. This is a situation where the original pipeline project has not even been permitted yet. And the 14 additional lines make this an entirely new and different project. 
If the pipeline permit requests aren't consolidated, Taylor asks that the board stay action on the 14 additional permit requests until the original permit is decided. Taylor said March 15th that the motions might delay a decision in Summit's original case, but they also could expedite, expedite consideration of the entire project. This week, Summit filed a motion asking regulators to reject the group's requests, saying they're without merit and will result in nothing more than delay. Summit said the board denied a similar request last year, and many of the same reasons apply. Among them, the board found that consolidation would not expedite or simplify consideration of the issues involved. In fact, it said the board found the opposite to be true in this situation. Summit wrote that its permit request has taken 31 months to get to this point and would likely take a similar time frame to develop by consolidating pipeline permit requests. The only remaining step in this docket is for the board to issue its, its, its decision, the company wrote. In a related decision, the Utilities Board on March 14th issued a letter denying some of its proposed dates to hold public meetings in the counties where the new pipeline route would run. In a two-to-one decision, board members Joshua Burns and Sarah Martz wrote that Summit shouldn't consider dates before June. Board member Eric Hillen agreed with Summit's proposed April and May dates. Altogether, Summit proposes building a 2,500-mile pipeline that connects to 57 ethanol plants in Minnesota, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota, as well as Iowa. The projects have been controversial across the region. Critics have voiced concerns about pipeline safety and the project's impact on farmland and drainage tiles underlying fields, and have objected to granting Summit eminent domain. And our last story on the front page of today's Metro and Iowa section, Nick's Penitentiary's first black warden dies at 93. One man made history on December 1st of 1981 when he assumed the role of warden at the Iowa State Penitentiary, or abbreviated ISP, in Fort Madison. Crispus Nix was the first black warden at the penitentiary in the state of Iowa, leaving a legacy behind that changed the state's prison systems after serving as warden for 11 years. Nix died Sunday on March 10th at the age of 93 in Montgomery, Alabama. Nix grew up in Greenville, Alabama as the seventh of nine child children. According to a Facebook post from the 15th Military Police Brigade, he graduated from Tuskegee University excuse me, Tuskegee University in 1957 with a Bachelor of Science degree in physical education. He also received a Master's of Science degree in vocational rehabilitation from South Carolina University in 1974. Taking reign as warden in December of 1981, Nix had just left the U.S. Army as an active duty colonel after serving combat tours in Korea and Vietnam. According to Bill Petrosky, a former registered reporter, Nix was seen as somebody who could kick butt and shape up an Iowa prison staff to handle difficult inmates at the state's toughest prison. Before Nix's takeover as warden, the ISP in Fort Madison made national headlines after a major prison run left one inmate dead and caused more than $1 million in damage. Nix came to Iowa after being the commander of a maximum security military prison in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas replacing then-warden then David Skur, who was transferred to the Mount Pleasant Correctional Facility. Nix had plenty on his plate between budget limitations and troublemakers in the prison. 
we are entering a period dominated by the scarcity of funds that will be required that will require cutbacks, trade-offs, reallocation of programs, terminations, and freezing of privileges which some inmates and staff have come to regard as unnegotiable rights, Nick said to the Register in 1983. It is hoped by improving management skills, practical and creative thinking about the future, that we will cope with our current crisis with efficiency and effectiveness. Implementing rules from requiring correctional officers to shine their shoes to enforcing inmates to obey their orders, Nick's dramatically changed the environment of the Fort Madison prison. He was somebody who was just incredibly respected as a real professional, Petrusky said to the register. He's the kind of guy that people wanted to follow. Nick's brought about change to the ISP and the Fort Madison community alike. According to Petrowski, Nix made headlines for his successes while in leadership. We, that being the Des Moines Register, wrote many stories about how he made prison employees proud of themselves and provided an atmosphere where inmates knew what they could and couldn't do and didn't have to live in fear at the prison, Petrowski said in an email to the Register. According to inmates in an episode of Iowa Press in 1982, Racial discrimination is a part of life at Fort Madison. Some inmates even cited the Ku Klux Klan operating within the prison walls. Just over a week after Nix took over as warden, he started an investigation into allegations of guards recruiting inmates to join the Ku Klux Klan. You can watch the full episode featuring Nix and his initiatives while warden at ISP on the American Archive of Public Broadcasting's website. Nix retired in 1993 after serving as the warden at ISP for 11 years, garnering the praise of then-Governor Terry Branstad. Crispus Nix has done an outstanding job as warden of the maximum security prison in Fort Madison, Branstad said in 1993, according to the Register Archives. He came in at a very difficult time and restored order and discipline and gained the respect of the staff and inmates. We're all going to miss him but we're very pleased and proud of the record he has established during his time at Fort Madison. Nix was laid to rest in the Alabama National Cemetery in Montevallo, Alabama, on Monday, March 18th. His full obituary can be viewed at the Ross Clayton Funeral Home website. And concluding Metro and Iowa news, Business Park intersection in Ankeny to get a new traffic signal. The Ankeny City Council approved a project Monday to add a new traffic signal to the intersection of Southeast Corporate Woods Drive and Southeast Crosswinds Drive by the Crosswinds Business Park. The project will include constructing a new traffic signal, pedestrian improvements, and fiber optic cable installation. Heartland Underground Solutions of Des Moines received the $237,000 bid. Work would begin no earlier than July 15th, according to city documents. Some work, including fiber optic installation and foundation for traffic pool, would need to be done by September 15th. The schedule for the remaining work will depend on whether the city receives the signal materials and the contractor will have 20 working days to substantially complete the traffic signal installation. Traffic will be maintained in both directions with little impact expected to the public. Crosswinds Business Park will be covering 25% of the signal construction costs under a development agreement. Another new traffic signal is expected this year at the intersection of Southeast Delaware Avenue and Southeast 54th Street, south of Sam's Club. Work will begin in April or May and be finished in October. 
West Liberty Foods to cut 260 jobs and relocate some processing. West Liberty Foods, an East Central Iowa turkey processing plant, says it will lay off about 260 employees beginning in April as it moves some processing to a sister facility in the Chicago suburb. The farmer-owned cooperative will wind down its ready-to-eat turkey slicing operations, moving them to its facility in Bolingbrook, Illinois, a city of about 74,000 people outside of Chicago. It also will fold a second fabrication shift in West Liberty. Rapid growth and demand for West Liberty's ready-to-eat sandwiches produced at the Illinois plant is driving the move, West Liberty Foods said Monday in an email. Last week, Tyson Foods said it would close its Perry pork processing plant, laying off nearly 1,300 workers in June as it seeks efficiencies in its operations. The West Liberty layoffs are slated to begin April 29th. Additional cuts are expected in May, June, and November, the company said. But it said its turkey harvesting and first ship fabrication operations won't be affected and that it will keep its headquarters in West Liberty. Turkey growers formed the company in 1996 after Oscar Meyer said it would close the plant. The company now employs 865 workers there. Quote, as the president of this community, the decision to reduce production capacity in West Liberty was difficult and painful, West Liberty CEO Brandon Auction said in a statement. We value the contributions of all of our team members and deeply regret the need for layoffs. We are committed to connecting each affected person with new employment opportunities and support, Hawkins said. In addition to the layoffs, the company said it's suspending its matching contributions to team members' 401k retirement plans as a, quote, temporary measure to conserve cash, end quote. West Liberty said it's working to identify reassignment opportunities within our community, within our, com- within our company, and providing on-site reemployment and support services. In Perry, Tyson has said it's encouraging workers to take new jobs at the company's other operations. A job fair is scheduled on April 3rd. And Democrats officially certify Biden as the winner of the 2024 caucus. The Iowa Democratic Party's State Central Committee has voted to certify the final results of its 2024 presidential caucuses, giving incumbent Democratic President Joe Biden an official victory. According to a news release from the party, 13,000, pardon me, yes, that's 13,652 people participated in the party's first ever mail-in caucus. The final certified results are Joe Biden, 12,337, Dean Phillips, 394, Marianne Williamson, 307, and uncommitted, 614. Quote, IDP staff has worked hard over this past year to make sure that this year's presidential caucus was as accessible as possible, Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart said in a statement. Now that the State Central Committee has officially approved this year's presidential caucus results, the evidence is clear. It's time to get to work to re-elect President Biden. Iowa's Democratic caucuses were held March 5th, and the party accepted mail-in preference cards through March 8th, as long as they were postmarked by March 5th. The party announced the final totals, which were certified by the party's governing, governing body, on March 16th. On related news, Biden heads west on campaign trip. Three-day trek includes Nevada, Arizona, and Texas. President Joe Biden is embarking on a three-day campaign swing aimed at shoring up his standing in the Sun Belt as part of an aggressive play to re-energize vital parts 
of his 2020 electoral coalition. Much of the Biden's time on this week's trip, which includes stops in Nevada, Arizona, and Texas, will be geared toward courting the Latino voters who helped power his coalition in 2020 and to emphasizing his pro-union, pro-abortion rights message. The Democratic president's first stop Tuesday is to Reno, Nevada, where he was to meet with local officials and campaign volunteers in Wasso County before heading to Las Vegas to promote his administration's housing policies. Next, he is scheduled to travel to Phoenix for another campaign stop in a critical swing county. It was paired with an event talking up what he has done to bolster the computer chip manufacturing sector. Biden's push with Latino voters this week, which included the formal launch of the Latinos Con Biden-Harris, Latinos with Biden-Harris, initiative on Tuesday as part of the campaign's broader effort to put in place the infrastructure to re-engage various constituencies that will be critical to the president's re-election. That effort is all the more crucial as key parts of Biden's base, such as black and Hispanic voters, have become increasingly disenchanted with the president's performance in office. In an AP NORC poll conducted in February, 38% of U.S. adults approved of how Biden was handling his job. Nearly 6 in 10 black adults at 58% approved, compared to 36% of Hispanic adults. Black adults are more likely than white and Hispanic adults to approve of Biden, but that approval has dropped in the three years since Biden took office. Biden's re-election campaign, along with allied Democratic groups, has opened offices in Wasso County and specific areas of Las Vegas that aid said will help the campaign to target black, Latino, and Asian American voters. Bilingual campaign organizers are already in place in Arizona, and the campaign has opened an office in Maryvale, a major Latino community in Phoenix. The campaign has hired more than 40 staffers in Nevada and Arizona. Campaign officials believe that tuned-out voters are starting to pay attention to the reality of a rematch between Biden and former President Donald Trump now that the two candidates have clinched their respective nominations. They're trying to boost coalition building efforts in battleground states now that the matchup is set. Using the energy coming out of Biden's State of the Union earlier this month to jolt their campaign momentum. That includes, for example, ensuring that chapters are in place across college campuses so that students have a place to organize, and that campaign offices are open and stocked with yard signs, campaign literature, and other materials. Democrats are hoping that Trump and the GOP will struggle to catch up in key states. The campaign has already established Women for Biden-Harris, an effort led by First Lady Jill Biden to mobilize female voters who were a vital part of Biden's winning coalition in 2020, as well as Students for Biden-Harris, which will focus on getting young voters organized and active. Latinos con Biden and Harris will include other campaign events this week, such as volunteer training and house parties in other battleground states, including Nevada, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Wisconsin. This isn't stuff that you can just stand up. This is stuff that requires work, Quentin Falks, principal deputy campaign manager for the Biden campaign, said in an interview. It does require training. It does require making sure that your volunteers and supporters have what they need on the ground. Meanwhile, the Republican National Committee dismissed dozens of staffers after new leaders closely aligned with Trump, who took over last week. 
those let go include people who worked at the party's community centers that helped build relationships with minority groups in some Democrat-leaning areas. The committee's new leadership has since insisted that those centers will remain open. The RNC, already strapped for cash, is also trying to bat away assumptions that it'll pay for Trump's ever-escalating legal bills as he faces multiple criminal cases. Still, the Biden campaign and the broader Democratic Party are confronting their own struggles, despite their cash and organizational advantages. On top of Biden's weaker job performance numbers, Democrats are seeing less support from key voting blocs. Some um, vote come election time, excuse me. While Biden won 63% of Hispanic voters in 2020, that percentage shrunk to 57% for Democratic candidates in the 2022 midterms, according to AP VoteCast, a survey of national electorate. Despite the waning approval numbers, campaign off officials say they are confident that once the contrast between the president's agenda and Trump's plans for a second term are presented to disillusioned members of Biden's coalition, they will ultimately back the president. I can say this as a Latina. We always come late to the party. We like to make a grand entrance, said Democratic strategist Maria Cardona. I think that's what you see again and again, because when it comes down to people making a real decision that is consequential to their future and the future of their children, the future of their communities, it's not some random phone call from an anonymous pollster. I think that the Democratic coalition will come home. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, Democrat from Nevada, stressed that Democrats cannot take the state, which has not voted for a Republican presidential candidate since 2004, for granted even as she dismissed some polling that shows Trump with an edge in Nevada. you got to be there talking to voters, particularly in Nevada, Cortez Mastro said. It's still small enough. It's three million people. They expect you to show up, right? It's a swing state. It's very diverse, and people just expect that type of engagement so they can decide for themselves. Biden's three-day trip will wrap up in Texas, where he will host fundraisers. And some little state news here before we go to our birthdays. In Alabama and Montgomery, Hyundai Motor Manufacturing Alabama fortified its support for working parents, announcing that the company will soon support 25% of each employee's child care cost up to $150 a month. And in Anchorage, Alaska, police say one man was fatally shot after an altercation at a restaurant, Alaska Public Media reported. And in Little Rock, Arkansas, the city of Wyan will be receiving $7 million in federal funds for infrastructure recovery after the Legislative Council approved the State Department of Agriculture's request, the Arkansas Democratic Gazette reported. In Malibu, California, wildlife experts are searching for answers to explain why a gray whale mysteriously washed ashore in Malibu shortly before its death. It's not unusual for gray whales to wash up on the shores of California's beaches, and experts have said there is no reason to believe standings have increased in, or strandings have increased in previous years. While plenty of theories abound, the exact reasons for the strange behavior largely elude marine biologists.